Ahoy hoy, all you delightful little ragamuffins. I'm John Miller, and you are listening to the Everybody Trades Podcast. And one of my biggest goals on this program, as you know, if you've been a longtime listener, if you're and if you're new, hey, welcome. Thanks for joining me for perhaps one of the first times. And again, what I like to do on this program is I like to take economics, money, Two topics that are often a little bit frightening and intimidating to people. Well, my goal is definitely not to mystify people. It's, in fact, to clarify stuff. I like to take seemingly complex topics and make them more understandable for people who are interested. So the last thing in the world that I want to do is bring up a topic like, for instance, the labor theory of value and have people's eyes start rolling into the back of their heads. Because guess what? The labor theory of value, well, if you've ever read any Karl Marx, for instance, he's the guy who is a gigantic proponent of the labor theory of value. Well, frankly, it's some of the most boring Some of the most boring stuff, the most boring books, the most boring writing you could ever possibly imagine. So, but just wait, wait a second though. I promise once again not to bore you because here's what I'm going to do I'm going to explain to you what the labor theory of value is, why it's important that we get the correct theory right, which is in fact the subjective theory theory of value. And yes, while this all sounds a little bit nerdy, I promise I won't get too esoteric here. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to clarify this quite well and get to the really important part, which is, Hey, if we get this wrong, well, guess what? This isn't just some, some academic question on a multiple choice test that we might get wrong and it might hinder our ability to get into Harvard or Yale. No, if we get this question wrong, We will, in fact, see the ruination of all society. So now have I got your attention? Well, good. Let's move on. Now, for me, one of the best ways to explain what the labor theory of value is and why it's wrong at the end of the day is to contrast it with my theory. Well, not my theory, but the theory that I subscribe to, which is the subjective theory of value. See, I've almost lived 40 years on this here planet at this point. And in these past 40 years, well, I've had a unique opportunity, my entire generation has, quite honestly, to see the most rapid technological change in the history of humanity. For instance, when I was a child, the hot new technological device was the VHS machine, a personal tape machine. For all intents and purposes. Yes, back in the day, kids, if you don't know what a VHS machine is, well, look it up. I'll try to explain as best I can. You see, back in the day when my parents were growing up, the only way you could really watch something in terms of how we think of media today is you could watch it on television. You could get it through an antenna via via radio waves or... You had to go to a movie theater and actually watch a film projected onto a screen. Well, somebody figured out that, hey, we can actually sell home recording devices for all intents and purposes. Not only could these VHS machines, not only could they record things off the television, well, a whole home movie industry sprang up 
around VHSs. So now, for instance, you could buy something like the new Batman movie starring Jack Nicholson and, and Michael Keaton. Well, that was something you couldn't do before. When my, again, when my parents were, were children, there was no such thing as owning Gone with the Wind on home movie. That technology just didn't exist. So obviously, the consumers were really into this. And in fact, to the point where it's hilarious, you go back 30 years ago, go look at some microfish sometime, and you'll be amazed to find that these VHS players are going for three, four, five hundred dollars $500. And this is 1990 type money too. So that's, you know, $700 in today's, in today's dollars when you factor in inflation. So what's funny about that is, of course, now in today's day and age, there's almost no human being in the world who wants anything to do with a VHS player. So what changed? Well, obviously, new technology replaced the VHS player. But of course, just because new technology is introduced to the market, well, that doesn't mean that it's going to be successful. You see, this is where the labor theory of value truly runs awry. Because, indeed, it is the consumers of any product who decide if that product has value. They are the ones who will decide. For instance, VHS back in the 80s had a competitor called Betamax. Well, guess what? The consumers, for various different reasons, ultimately concluded that they preferred VHS, and Betamax went away. Now, if you're a company that makes... Betamax or VHS or you made CD players back in the day or now DVD players which are becoming obsolete. No matter what technology it is that consumers have suddenly decided that they don't want as much as they used to in nearly as many of the numbers as they used to, well, I guess in theory that a private company, there's nothing stopping them other than their own capital from continuing to produce those. A company in theory, there's no law against continuing to produce CD players or VHS players. But of course, no one would do that because you realize quickly, oh my God, my sales have gone down every month, every year consecutively for the past however many years or months. At a certain point, you stop throwing good money after bad. That's what any rational human being would do. But unfortunately, in that process, of course... A bunch of people who are making good money in the compact disc or VHS industry, well, they're going to have to be laid off. They're frankly going to have to find new ways to make a living. Now, unfortunately, somebody like me who recognizes that the subjective value, the subjective theory of value is reality, well, we acknowledge that sometimes painful reality. But the opposite of the equation is actually even more painful. And in fact, it's profoundly more painful if you do not allow this process to take place. Basically, the process of some things become antiquated, new things enter the market, and yes, while there's disruptions to people's employment, their salaries, their lives, all that kinds of things, well, unfortunately, that's a side effect of, again, not, not a system, this is a side effect of reality. But of course, that's not a good enough answer for somebody like Karl Marx, quite frankly. You see, this is where the labor theory of value comes into factor. You see, to somebody like Marx, the value is in the labor itself. The value is that people are getting paid. 
people are getting a salary. And then thus, well, if those people are getting a salary, then they can go out and, and buy groceries and buy other things, and then other people can get paid. And it's this this sort of virtuous cycle of spin, 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 and hey, everybody gets a taste of the action as long as everybody is constantly spending. And on some level, that makes sense. But again, what if we were just spending over and over again? What if we were still on VHS players for the last 30 years? What if DVDs never came along? What if streaming video came along? Well, frankly, if the government, for instance, had propped up the VHS industry for the last 30 years and decided, oh, all these good people with excellent jobs in the home movie VHS industry... Well, we can't let them lose their jobs. In fact, these are good union voters. We can't, we can't have them mad at us. So obviously, we have to constantly prop up and indeed bail out what is a failing industry. And of course, by doing so, we completely throttle any types of new innovations that might come on the market. Because guess what? Here's something a lot of people, especially Marxists, take for granted. People who believe in the labor theory of value. Well, it takes a tremendous amount of savings and risk by anybody who's trying to bring a new product to market. Now, while some people would love, frankly, to stagnate society at America's current level, they probably think, well, look at all the stuff that we have. How much more innovation technologically and in various ways, how much more rich does America need to be, for instance, or the Western world, whatever it might be. Well, the reality is if you think that we can just freeze our current standard of living, I'm sorry, again, that's just not the way the world works. If you artificially try to freeze a society and keep them where it is, well, I'm sorry, you won't just be having the same society that you had before in 1991 where people had that level of wealth and security and VHS players. Eventually, the VHS players, it's not going to work anymore. I promise you. And let me give you a great example of why this is. In fact, I just have been reading a book by the utterly brilliant and totally wise Mr. Richard J. Mayberry. There's this book. It Really, this is a book that's absolutely accessible for anybody who's probably 12 years of age or older. But this book is called Whatever Happened to Penny Candy? And just this short expert, this excerpt, excuse me, I'm about to read from this book, I think really explains everything you need to know about central command versus the free market, about indeed the labor theory of value versus the subjective theory of value. Again, this is Richard J. Mayberry's Whatever Happened to Penny Candy, and this particular excerpt is entitled One Reason Governments Spend So Much. Industries generally develop in three stages. First is scientific feasibility, second is engineering feasibility, and the third is economic feasibility. So again, this is John here. I'm going to get off the page here for a second. Again, that's scientific feasibility. That generally comes first. Then the next is engineering feasibility, and the third is economic. Now I'm going to continue here with Richard. Using the airline industry as an example, the question in the 1800s was, is long-distance air travel possible? In the 1800s, balloons were already in use, but they were not practical. The problem to solve was the heavier-than-air machine. 
1903, the Wright brothers proved scientific feasibility. They risked their time, money, and lives to show that a heavier-than-air machine could fly. In 1927, Charles Lindbergh proved engineering feasibility. He risked time, money, and his life to show that long-distance air travel was possible. This gave investors enough confidence to risk their money in the aircraft industry. In 1935, the Douglas Company came out with the DC-3, which was the beginning of economic feasibility. The modern airline industry resulted from all this risk-taking. Today, a middle-class American can go anywhere in the world much faster and in much greater comfort than a Roman emperor could. Travelers fly because the benefits are greater than the costs. This is economic feasibility. This three-step model explains why governments are terrible at economic development. The, quote, experts who comprise the government gamble with other people's money, so they tend to confuse scientific and engineering feasibility with economic feasibility. Once science and engineering prove something can be done, those who comprise the government will do it, even if the costs are greater than the benefits. So in other words, and this is me talking again, I'm finished with that expert. In other words, just to put a little button on that, in other words, just because something can be done doesn't mean that it should be done. And the reality is, is people like the Wright brothers and Charles Lindbergh took risks that most human beings, most individuals would have considered way too risky, just way, way, way too dangerous, not only economically, but just in terms of their own life and limb. But of course, when you're the government and you don't truly have any skin in the game, when it's all somebody else's money that you're spending and you're risking, and frankly, their lives often too, whether it's experimental technology or it's whatever's happening overseas with our military. It's all, it's all just one gigantic moral hazard where they take whatever risks they deem necessary, no matter how you calculate the benefits, no matter if the benefits are totally ridiculous. And by the way, the most important part is, is they don't actually bear any of the costs of these decisions, not in any serious way. And certainly not even close to an individual like Charles Lindbergh or indeed the Wright brothers. And despite the fact that the airline industry of today certainly has its problems, no doubt about that, uh, (laughs) this isn't a long enough episode to get into how and why all of those problems exist. But if you look at the positive side of everything, once again, as Mayberry noted, we've now gone from a world where A Roman emperor, the richest people in the world, Rockefeller, whoever it might have been in the 1800s, well, they were traveling across the country in a train at best. And certainly Roman emperors were were going across the country in a carriage, on horses, whatever it might be. But instead, now we've got utterly middle-class people, just the, the, the great unwashed masses can all get on a Southwest flight and fly across the country for a relatively nominal amount of money, considering what an insane idea that really was about 100 years ago. 
So the bottom line is, I guess if you really want to, we can freeze all of society now and kiss all of the innovations that we'll have for the next hundred years goodbye. That's your best case scenario, by the way, if you believe in the labor theory of value. But if you believe in this, if you believe in the subjective theory of value, like I do, well, I promise you, you're going to see progress like you can't possibly imagine. So with all that being said, thank you for joining me once again right here on Everybody Trades. Everybody Trades.